The following sermon was given on Sunday, March 31st, the fourth Sunday in Lent at St. Paul's Church on Lake of the Isles in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So the parable of the prodigal is one of my favorites because it allows me a lot of opportunity to reflect on my own spiritual story by reading it. And I've told my story to many of you, either one-on-one, over coffee, in small groups, in Bible study, or in sermons. And it's the story of how I came to the Episcopal Church after being kicked out of my own church when I came out as gay. Now, I had begun wandering in the wilderness because of that situation. And as I have begun reflecting on that story a bit more, more and more has come to my mind about what was really important about that time in my life. You see, I like the narrative that I was kicked out of my church when I came out as gay, that I went on this wandering, this spiritual journey for many years and just so happened to find myself in an Episcopal church, kneeling at an altar rail, feeling that I was home. All those details are true, but there are some that I kind of like to leave out of the story. You see, my journey away from God began years earlier with the realization that I was, in fact, gay. While we might like to think of our congregation as a safe place for people who are LGBTQ, there are many places in our country and in our churches that is not, that, that is not true. Having grown up in the Christian tradition that I did, to come out as gay simply meant that you couldn't be in church. And so I began wandering far from God. Somewhere along this journey, though, I began to develop a bit of bitterness and anger towards the church and towards Christians. And this anger grew as the journey in the wilderness stretched on for months and years. You see, it's one thing to be a victim of oppression and an institution that fails to show compassion, but it is something altogether different to allow that oppression to enter you to allow that very anger to strip you of your very humanity. Despite what I would have liked to tell people about myself at that time, I knew good and well that I needed faith. I knew good and well that I needed a community. I knew that I needed a connection to something bigger than myself, something that would allow my life to have meaning. So I just did my Enneagram. And I just discovered that I am an Enneagram 7. Anyone who knows me and knows Enneagrams know this is nothing of a surprise. This means I am a joyful person. I am the enthusiast. I live to bring joy to the world, which is probably why I love Christmas. (laughs) But it also means that I tend to sublimate or to avoid pain rather than sitting in it and allowing it to teach me something. You see, during that wilderness experience, I would sublimate the pain of my own unfulfilled longing with research and writing, things I am very, very good at. But deep down inside, I was hungry for more. I was hungry for God. And I was angry. And I was bitter. And I was resentful. And I was closed. And my soul was dying. By the time I rediscovered God at St. Martin's Episcopal Church all those years ago, I had built up a pretty thick skin. You see, I knew myself to be a victim of an injustice which caused me shame, but I had not yet found the ability to humbly open myself to God 
and allowed God to fill me with exactly what I needed. In my experience, we tend to have incredibly poor understanding and language for sin and repentance because we probably fall into one of two extremes. We either completely ignore sin altogether, choosing instead to pretend like our lives are perfect or at the very least good enough, that we tend to do the right thing. So language about sin is about those other people, those people who vote differently or call God different names. So we either do that or we dwell in sin, so much so that we load ourselves with guilt and shame, seeing worthlessness where God sees immeasurable value. Both extremes, either ignoring sin or dwelling in it, are both spiritually dangerous because both are rooted in pride. You see, when we ignore sin, we tend to think of ourselves as better than others. We're better than those murderers, than those liars, than those people who gossip. And I guarantee you, we have people floating in our mind right now who we're better than. And then when we dwell in sin, we ignore the very voice of God by denying the goodness within which each and every one of us was made, the goodness that God still claims for each and every one of us. So if neither ignoring sin nor dwelling in sin is going to get us to the right place, what will? One word. Humility. Humility isn't about self-abasement. It is only this. It is the creation within us of space for that which is not us. In Christian terms, humility is the creation of space within us to experience the grace of God. Humility is what happens when we reach the end of our own rope, when we realize that we need God more than we need air to breathe. Humility is what happens when we tell the truth, that we are not islands unto ourselves, that we need help, that life is difficult. Humility is what we have when we have decided that we cannot be gods to ourselves, that we are willing to give up our life to God in a more substantial way. St. Augustine of Hippo once said this in a letter to a student. If you should ask me what are the ways of God, I should tell you this. The first is humility. The second is humility. And the third is humility. Not that there are no precepts to give, but if humility does not proceed all that we do, it is worth nothing. For St. Augustine, humility is best demonstrated in Christ on the cross because not only did he deign to be born in a human body, but he also died the death of a criminal in order that we might live. He doesn't do so because his life is worthless. On the contrary, he does so because his life held immeasurable value. Humility brings us back to God because it is only in a state of complete humility that we can finally admit that we have wandered far from God in the first place. The parable of the prodigal shows us this. You see, pride takes us away from the love of God and only humility can bring us back home. Both sons, the older and the younger, were full of themselves and found themselves having wandered far from love. 
The younger son was full of selfishness, and the older son full of resentment. After hitting rock bottom, the younger son realized that he, if he is going to survive, he's got to go back home. He's run out of money, so he has to turn back home. And he realizes that his behavior has stripped him of his very identity, his sonship. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, he says. Instead, his experience at rock bottom has completely stripped him of any pride whatsoever. In response to his younger son's humility, the father in our parable throws him a party, welcomes him back home, not as a servant, but as a son. You see, humility is rooted in hard truth-telling. Imagine if the son had returned home, expecting to be treated as if nothing had happened. Imagine the pride and the hubris that, would have, that this would have shown. You see, he realizes that his actions have hurt his father and his family and that his sonship is forfeited unless his father chooses to return it to him. The older son's response is one of resentment, a feeling I know quite well. He came near to the party, and rather than enter, he chose to stay outside, choosing to nurse his anger. You see, he is so full of resentment that he doesn't even realize that he has hit rock bottom. That this is his opportunity to return home. He is unable to see all the ways that his father's love for him was shown throughout the years. And his father's invitation to him was to come in. And we are left to wonder. The parable doesn't actually conclude. We're just left to wonder. Does that older son actually choose to enter the party? My experience with God is this, that I had to give up some things in order to follow God more closely. I had to give up an allegiance to anger. I had to surrender respect for resentment. I had to give up a fealty for unforgiveness. I had to relinquish a devotion to being dissatisfied. You see, it took years later, but I discovered that I had spent so much of my life defining those years as by that one negative moment that I wasn't able to see all the ways that God's hand was at work in my life, opening doors I could not even imagine. To go deeper in God, I had to learn to practice humility. And to practice humility, I had to practice confession and gratitude. You see, we can practice confession and gratitude by being intentional. When is the last time you really paid attention to the words in the confession? Did you think about that angry interaction you had with someone? That time you said that unkind thing about someone when they weren't even in the room? That moment that we failed to tell the whole truth? The moment that we fail to live up to the love that God commands us to have for all people. No asterisk. And when was the last time that you said thank you to God? Not thank you for stuff, but thank you for creating me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for calling me into this life. Thank you for empowering me to share and serve in your reign of love. Thank you. Confession and gratitude. 
If we can't practice them, then we certainly cannot practice humility. And if we cannot practice humility, then we cannot truly claim to follow the way of Christ, which is the way of the cross, which is none other than the way of life and peace. All those many years ago, I knelt down at that altar rail at St. Martin's Episcopal Church, and I got up with a thank you on my lips. So when you come to this table and you kneel and you receive the bread of life given for you, what will be on your lips when you get up? 